Welcome to Nobody's Perfect, a community built to support, inspire, and empower Colorado youth and families. Our mission is to collaboratively break down stigma and offer solutions to the mental health and well-being challenges we all can face. Nobody's Perfect is more than a podcast. It's a movement. The show is powered by the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, Arapahoe Douglas Counties, and funded by NAMI Colorado and Kaiser Permanente. I am your host, Jason Hopkins, and joined today with my co-host, licensed clinical social worker, Amy Staley. We have the pleasure of welcoming our guest, Sadie Sutton. Sadie is a 20-year-old psychology student at the University of Pennsylvania. After receiving a year and a half of intensive treatment beginning at 13 years old and fully recovering from severe depression and anxiety, she was inspired to share her story with fellow teens going through their own personal growth. Since sharing her story, Sadie has accumulated over 200,000 downloads on her podcast, She Persisted, appeared on 25 shows, and been featured in multiple publications, including the New York Times. Sadie is the reminder that if a teenager can take ownership of their mental health and turn their life around, then so can you. Sadie, I am thrilled to have you here today. I'm just going to say I, I geeked out on your show and learned about you on Instagram. And once I saw the amazing work you're doing, I reached out to Amy and I said, we have to see if she'll be on our show. I mean, we aspire to have as many downloads as you have um, here at Nobody's Perfect, but thank you for taking the time to join us here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And I think both of our missions are so aligned. So I'm really excited for this conversation. I love it. Yes, Sadie, thank you so much for joining us. Um, as Jason said, I think we both geeked out a little bit at um, listening to your podcast, and we're really excited that you were willing to join us and really that your podcast started from your own story. And I think that's what makes it so relatable for youth. And our goal on Nobody's Perfect is to have resources for youth, for families, for anyone who's going through a hard time. And I think listening and hearing from somebody who has developed a podcast kind of with your own journey um, is an amazing opportunity for us and our listeners. So thank you. Uh, can you share a little bit with us what drew you to wanting to join us with Nobody's Perfect today? Yeah, well, it's funny. I have been in the, the game of podcasting for over four years now, and I started out as a teeny tiny show. I think my like first month, the only listens were me because I was not promoting it whatsoever, and it was horrible quality. And so I think um, I have so much appreciation for the podcasting community and especially the mental health community, the, that little part of the podcasting world. Um, anytime I can connect with other podcasters and collaborate in any way. I'm always very excited to do so because I know how hard it is to get guests on and have these conversations and how much work goes in behind the scenes to give anyone a voice on a podcast. And so I'm just really appreciative that you guys asked me to come on. That uh, Again, we're so grateful for that. I guess my question, first of all, you know, you started this podcast after having living experience and been an inpatient treatment. Tell me what was the spark or the inspiration point for you that really led you to realizing that I've had this experience, I've been through this, and now it's it's time for me to show up and serve others. Like that is really inspiring to me. Yeah. So um, I'm sure we'll go into more detail, but for some context, I started struggling with my mental health in middle school. I hit like rock bottom, lowest point my freshman year of high school. So really my like seventh, eighth grade and first half of freshman year were really tough. 
And I think like most teens, things started shifting slowly. It was maybe my sleep schedule started getting more disturbed. I started arguing more with my parents or I was a little bit more isolated from my friends or the way I was talking to myself was a bit more negative. And it really just one day I realized that I was really, really struggling. And it wasn't really an awareness that like I need help and I need to fix this. It was like, this is just what my life looks like. I can't remember anything different. And this is exhausting and overwhelming and isolating and miserable. And so I started um, seeing a therapist in eighth grade and it was um, a marriage and family therapist. We would work on like family dynamics and emotion regulation type things. And it was interesting because even though I was in therapy, there wasn't really awareness or willingness on my end to talk about anything that I was going through. So I was really like, had this wall up. I wasn't talking to my friends. I wasn't talking to my parents. There was really no one that I was looping in with regard to how I was doing mentally. And so my parents definitely knew that something was wrong. I wasn't sleeping like I normally had. I was self-harming. We were arguing a lot more. I didn't want to talk to them whatsoever. My friendships had started to change. And so they noticed a lot of these common red flags that we associate with depression or anxiety or just mental health challenges in teens. And so they took me to my pediatrician and they did the standard depression diagnostic questionnaire. And it was really interesting because it was the first time that anyone had ever listed out everything I was experiencing. It was like less interest in things you used to enjoy, having less energy, being more emotional, having disrupted sleep, less appetite. And I was like that every single thing you're saying is exactly what I'm experiencing. And I think I just had blinders on into my um, own experience. There wasn't much appreciation or interest in like the mental health world at that point. And so some people would have been like, oh, you're depressed and that's what's going on for me. It was like, this is just what my life looks like. This is how my brain works. This is how I feel. And I can't change that because I don't remember anything different. And so after the pediatrician appointment, I ended up going to an inpatient hospital stay because again, there was no line of communication. I had been self-harming at that point. I was just really, really incredibly depressed and we needed to find a path forward and shift some things in some way. And so that was um, the fall of my eighth grade year. And the next year and a half was everything that you can imagine locally, which parents, if you're listening and you have a teen who struggled, you can recognize all of these different words and things that we tried out, which is that we did four hospital stays. We did um, intensive outpatient programs, which had a variety of family therapy and group therapy and occupational therapy. Um, We did outpatient DBT. We did individual therapy. We did family therapy, phone coaching, skills groups, medication management, meeting with a psychiatrist, All of these things that you try to do when your teen is struggling and you're not yet looking at a a next step or like a larger level of support and things weren't shifting. I was still really depressed. I was really anxious. I was really suicidal and still struggling with things like Mm self-harm, just really ineffective ways of coping and unhealthy relationships, really low self-esteem, all of those kinds of things. And so halfway through my freshman year of high school, my treatment team, my parents kind of came to the understanding that this isn't working. We've tried almost everything we can locally. Things aren't shifting. And I also was in no way motivated. Like, yes, I was going through the motions of going to these appointments or being in the hospital or taking a medication, but I didn't believe I was capable of recovering. I thought I was deserving of being depressed. I didn't think that my brain could even be happy. There was really not any remote sense of a growth mindset there. And so- They understood that things 
weren't working. I needed a larger level of support and they found an incredible residential program right outside of Boston called Free East at McLean Hospital. And they specialize in intensive DBT and DBT stands for dialectical behavioral therapy. And it's clinically proven to be really effective for a variety of things, but especially teenage depression, anxiety, um, emotion regulation, family dynamics, all of those things. And we can talk more about DBT because I'm a huge fan and um, a huge supporter of that. But I, I started that program and it was funny. I, you do an intake meeting where you have like 15 different clinicians in the room with you and you right. have social workers and you have educators, you have psychiatrists, you have therapists, you have every single person who's going to be consulting on your case. And they start with the teen and they're like, so like, can you tell us a little bit about like what's been going on and give us some context here? Do you want your parents to be in the room? Do you want them to leave? And I'm from California. My parents had just flown across the country with me and like committed to doing this work and getting me the support I needed. And I was like, they can leave. I don't want them here. Please make them exit the room. And they asked me like point blank, do you want to be here? Do you want to be at residential treatment? And I think it's important context to have that I was 13 at this point and or 13 the first time I was hospitalized 14 when I started residential and all I knew was that I looked up McLean hospital and it was like the hospital that girl interrupted was based on and it used to be a silent an asylum I was like great perfect I'm going to the cuckoo's nest literally like what is happening I was terrified I had no idea what to expect I didn't want to be leaving high school there was just so much uncertainty and again that belief that I would never get better so it was like sure I guess I'm doing this I'm gonna hate this but like it's also not gonna work and so and they asked me if I wanted to be there it was an easy answer I didn't want to be there I didn't think it was gonna work I tried dbt before and I didn't believe I was capable of getting better and so what makes this program really unique is that every single patient that goes to three East is a willing participant, even as a teen. And that's not necessarily an industry standard, even though it should be, because having that willing participation and having that intrinsic motivation is key for success. And so they said, there's a couple of options here. You can find the wisdom in being here, which meant emotionally buying into the process and logically understanding that like, this is the best program in the world for teens doing intensive DBT treatment. And um, DBT works really well for teens that are depressed, anxious, suicidal, and struggling with their relationships. And these clinicians have seen hundreds of teens in my exact position. And if anyone can support me, it's them. And then emotionally saying, okay, I'm going to be vulnerable enough to tell them what's going on. And I'm going to trust them to help me. And I'm going to trust that this is a safe place for me to do the work and also having enough self-compassion to want to get better which up until that point, I never had. I, I, again, thought I was deserving of living a miserable life because my self-esteem was so low and I thought so lowly, so low of myself. And so that was a big shift to make. And at that point, it was like the amount of self-compassion I had was that, okay, maybe like 40 years from now, I could be like slightly less depressed than I am today. And like, I guess that's growth. And I think that's maybe like the best trajectory possible. Like there was just such a minimal amount um, of hope happening, but I was like, I'll have a little bit. And I ended up being at that residential program for 14 weeks. But once my parents came back into that intake meeting, my dad was so funny. He was like, so many teens struggle with depression and anxiety. So many teens struggle with their mental health. Think about how inspiring this will be to do the work and turn your mental health around. You should have a podcast and document this. And I had so much resentment towards my parents because mentally I was like, 
you guys raised me. I don't remember a time when I was happy. So this must be your fault. There wasn't like a reason I was depressed. I didn't go through a loss. There was no big change in my life. It wasn't like I woke up one day because something big happened, like a trauma. And then I started experiencing depression. It was like, I couldn't remember anything different. And my life had always been like that. Obviously that's the depression talking. That's not hundred percent accurate, but that's how it felt. And so right. there was a lot of blame and anger. And so my dad being like, we should podcast this. I was like, absolutely not like mortified. All these clinicians I'm going to be working with are around me. Like that is a huge HIPAA violation. You cannot have a microphone at a hospital. Like there's no way. And so laughed it off, moved on. And a year after that point, I was at a therapeutic boarding school and I had been stable for months at that point. I had healthy relationships with my family. I had built some really great friendships. Um, I had turned my mental health around with regards to my depression and anxiety. I wasn't suicidal. I wasn't self-harming. I was no longer meeting the criteria for either diagnosis. And the other thing that I noticed was that I felt happy. It was like living a life that was worth living for the first time that I could remember in years. And I was hopeful and I felt like I had done it. I was like, I can live this life. I love this life and things have gotten better. And I did it. And it was this moment of like, I was so hopeless a year before that. There was not a chance that I was going to recover. There was not a chance that I was capable of happiness. And so the fact that that 180 shift had 180 degree shift had been made, I was like, I have to share this with other teenagers because that was a really big um, mental block, if you will, is that, well, I'm a teen. I don't have enough autonomy to make these changes. Like sure, adults can go off and turn their lives around and no longer be depressed, but they get to decide who they're friends with and they don't have to go to school and they don't have all these choices that are being made for them. They don't have to live at home. Like it really felt like I didn't have enough autonomy to make changes that were meaningful enough to affect my mental health. And I was also really incredibly lucky with the resources I had access to in treatment. And I wanted to share those with as many teams as I could because so much of what I went through was preventable. Right. And then there was a lot of things that we would have done differently. Um, whether it was learning skills earlier on or it being put in that position where it was like, you have to be a willing participant or things get really out of your control really quickly. And so kind of sharing that experience. And, and since then it's really evolved into the resource that I wish I had. So not just here's what I learned from my experience and I hope it's helpful, but what conversations would I have appreciated as a teen about relationships and stress um, during final season and how to ask your parents for something. What are signs of anxiety? All of these different elements and aspects of mental health and um, inspiring perspectives that I don't think I was aware of when I was struggling or even before that point. So we're over four years into the podcast now and still still continuing on with that original mission. Well, I, I love it. I mean, I so many things are coming up and I know Amy's jumping at the bit to ask a question, but the thing that, that came up for me that you said very early on in this conversation was that you moved into this state of normalization. Like this is, this is my normal, like this is, this is my stasis point. And I think that's a pretty common thing that we see oftentimes a lot of people move into. I feel this way. I'm probably always going to feel this way. And it sounds like what you went through and the steps that you took begrudgingly, and then probably more willingly really led you to this place of recognizing by your own words, you know, if you looked back a year, your life was completely different a year later. Like that to me, I think is so important for anybody who's listening that has a teen that's struggling, or if you're a youth that's listening to really recognize the impermanence of many of these things. And with the appropriate treatment, there are solutions that can radically change the life you're living 
and get you a life that you love living in a way that you could not have imagined a year prior to that. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that's what you said with the impermanence piece is something I um, heard from one of the doctors um, at the residential program I went to as well, which is like life is impermanent. And if you're struggling, that impermanence will be on your side because it can't last forever. And I think there's a lot of mental processes that happen when we are depressed. We know that depressed people are more realistic. People that are statistically very happy are delusional when they evaluate how much control they have over their life. It's not accurate, but it gives them a lot of hope and allows them to work towards these goals that maybe they won't 100% achieve, but keeps us motivated and hopeful and wanting to move forward. And we also know that people that are depressed have a really difficult ability to not catastrophize and generalize their current experiences to the past and the future. And so there's all of these mental things that are working against you when you're depressed. And it's really hard to be like, what I'm telling myself isn't true. Like we know from a psychological perspective, it's not accurate. And yet at this point in time, I'm believing it to be true. And it feels like nothing will ever change. And that's so powerful. I mean, just the sheer recognition of this too shall pass, you know, like in, in the thick of it, you know, I know even from my own experience, it was impossible to recognize that it wouldn't always be this way. And even when you get better to think, oh, what if it gets bad again? You know, there is a real awareness that in some cases, your mind is not your friend. You know, yeah. the information that you have convinced yourself is reality is, in fact, probably not going to be the case now and forever. Totally. No, I'm, I I mean, I know Jason was um, commenting that I was jumping at the bits to ask the question. I feel like there's so many different directions and ways I want to go. So I'm sure we're, we're going to circle back to a few things from everything you just shared. And um, again, really appreciate your vulnerability in this experience. Um, one thing that came up for me as so as a licensed clinical social worker, I've worked in a few different settings. And actually, I got my um, MSW at Boston University. So I know the hospital that you're discussing and um, definitely has, has great recognition for the DBT program. Um, but even talking about attending partial hospitalizations and IOPs and, and um, inpatient experiences and residential, those are pieces that are words that some people feel very terrified or scared of thinking of what that experience will be like, or that's not going to help me. And I, I know you were talking a little bit about that, but for some of um, our listeners who might have a loved one or might themselves be going through a state of crisis that might require some of those levels of care, do you have any advice for them um, or things to think of in addition to being a willing participant? Because I agree with you. I think that's a really important component um, and also focusing on what is in their control. But what what advice might you have for someone who might be needing that level of care? Yeah, I, I think the emotional resistance is really natural. And even as you said that, I'm like, if someone told me you need to go to group therapy tomorrow, would I be like, oh, great. I'd be like, I don't need that. I don't want to do that. Like, no, thank you. It's not something that most people are like elated to go and do. Obviously, when you get offered help and people tell you this will work and this will be supportive and this is a potential path forward, you're like, okay, maybe you're willing to try that. But especially as a teen, there's so much anxiety, especially when, especially when social factors are introduced. And with that being said, I found it really helpful to look at the the rational side of things and looking at what the data says about doing group therapy or doing family therapy or what your goals are. Are your goals to feel less depressed? Are your goals to have a better daily routine? Are your goals to have better communication with your parents? Kind of understanding where you want to be. And then you say, what do I have to do to get there? 
And those different things you mentioned, whether it's a residential program, a partial hospitalization program, an inpatient program, depending on what level you're struggling, that probably fits into that hierarchy of goals. And so if you can kind of understand the larger picture and what you're working towards, and that this is like a building block and a step towards that, and not like, oh, it's Wednesday, I can't wait to go to group therapy. And like, that's just what my life looks like now. That of course is really disheartening and really not something that you're probably looking forward to. But understanding how it fits into these larger goals that you have or this better state of mental health that you want for yourself can be, can be really helpful. And I think one thing that can be really reassuring about treatment, especially as a teen, is that socially, I think that's one thing that I had a lot of anxiety about. It's like, well, you're with other teens. At first I was like, are they crazy? Like, I know I'm going to this program too, but like, why are they here? Like, do I, do I need this? Like, there's kind of those stigmas and misconceptions that we have. And especially when you've never been in one of those programs before, you're like, are people going to be nice? Are they going to make fun of me for what I'm experiencing? Do they get it? Do they not get it? Is everyone going to think that I'm crazy for feeling this way? And I think once you've been to literally any program one time, whether it was like a group therapy, maybe it was an IOP, maybe it was a hospitalization stay, you, you get that feeling where it's like, everyone's just struggling and everyone for some reason, somehow has so much compassion for everyone around them, but not for themselves. And so all these other teens want you to get better. They want to support you. And especially if you're doing group therapy, they're going to likely be supportive and validating um, and rooting for you. And it, it does tend to be a very uplifting environment. And all the adults that are there are there to moderate that and ensure that that environment is positive. And so I would say, going into, if I was going to be going into treatment tomorrow, that would be one of my biggest anxieties. And I would say that every single program I've gone to, the teens have been extremely nice and supportive and validating and, um, and compassionate, which I think takes a little bit of that anxiety away for sure. Well, and I love that you've, you've given us some better, better insight into what that experience is about, because the thing that I'm really hearing from you just in your validation of your own experience it sounds like the foundation of connection, you know, really. And so many teens struggle with this disconnectedness of, you know, overutilizing technology. And that's the way that, you know, teens are connecting with each other today, often in a way that is not as interpersonal as what you're talking about. And I wonder if there's this element of that being such a connective experience, A, through people collectively struggling for a common goal being together, but really because in many respects, many of us are robbed of actual real human connection. And I don't mean the kind that you can get on your phone or behind a screen. You know, there's something about that that seems curious to me. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Um, but the thing I'm really interested in, um, you know, we've met with a lot of teens over the last five years, and I hear consistently for teens wanting to improve their relationship or conversation specifically with their parents. And I also hear from parents often that I don't know how to talk to my teen. And I think there's this element of, you know, adapting to technology and being a native of technology. And there's a disconnect there that we see a lot. But from your perspective as a teen who has gone through this and it sounds like had some challenges with your parents along the way in, in adapting into this, um, what could you say is really important for a parent listening around engaging with their teen that's struggling? Like, I recognize that you're having some issues, but you may not be open to or be resistant to getting some treatment at this point. How how can we start blurring those lines so parents and teens have better conversations? Yeah, I, I really like the first thing you said about relationships being really essential. And again, this goes back to the psychology facts because I'm a psychology major and it's 
all I do every day. So um, I can't imagine why you chose psychology. Right. <laughs> You're awesome. But when these, again, these like statistically very happy people are studied, the ones that score well above the, the average rate of happiness, the only thing that was crucial for that happiness, the only thing that was necessary, the only necessary correlate was relationships. It didn't matter if you worked out, it didn't matter if you were religious, it didn't matter what career you had, it didn't matter what education level you had. And again, they were studying like undergrads. So we have this like weird population and weird as an acronym since we're like Western educated, industrialized, um, rich and democratic. So obviously some of these things don't expand and that's an issue within the field. But in general, when we look at the population of humans that tend to be struggling with mental health and have that awareness for that struggle, relationships are crucial to be happy and to thrive and and to have a a good sense of well-being and the people that were very very happy had stronger relationships that they reported they had um more frequent social interactions they spent more time with with their close family members and friends they had more relationships in general their network was larger and when we look at the the correlates of having positive relationships it's one of the strongest um, correlations that is seen in, in the psychology field, whether it comes to longevity, health outcomes, like recovering from a heart attack or organ transplant surgeries, like all of these things are, the outcomes are improved by having these healthy relationships. And so they're key across the board. And unfortunately, we just have to accept that. If you're like, well, I can do this by myself and it'll be fine and I don't need anyone else. It's just not true. It's not Unfortunately, true. We just have to accept that relationships are really key and really essential. And it's, if it, again, you're someone who likes to logic through things, there's an evolutionary reason, which is that humans are really weak. We are not good at fighting off attackers or animals or protecting our caves and caveman days. And when we were in a community, we had a better chance of survival. Right. And if we were on the outs from that community, we died. And so having those healthy relationships and being able to form and maintain those healthy relationships is crucial for our success, whether right. it's in caveman days or today. And so I think when it comes to mental health, I think another aspect that's at play is not just having those relationships, but not letting those relationships derail you emotionally. If you're someone that is having a lot of conflict with your parents or you don't feel seen or heard, and so those interactions become really distressing, then that's like the work that you're doing to be able to go into those relationships and again, like not have them derail you. But having those relationships in general is really important. I think another aspect of teen is that you don't necessarily get to decide your relationships. I think as an adult, you have have this blank canvas of like, okay, I have all these coworkers. Who do I want to sit with at lunch? And who do I want to be closest with? Or I'm in a college class with 300 people. Who do I want to be friends with? It's like, you spend a lot of time with your parents. You spend a lot of time with the people in your classes. You see your teachers a lot. Maybe you have a coach that you see all the time. Maybe you have family, friends, siblings. So you don't necessarily get to decide what those relationships are, but it is your responsibility to invest in those and maintain those. Otherwise it has a really negative impact on your own well-being. And so when it comes to that parent-teen relationship, we, again, we look at the facts and conflict increases throughout the teenage years. And as teens, we psychologically are more sensitive to rejection um, and vulnerability. It's something that we literally experience differently from either kids or adults. And so kind of having that information when we go into this relationship with our parents, because in a lot of ways, 
historically, your parents probably have been the people you looked up to the most. They're the ones that their acceptance or rejection mattered more than anything in the world. They also probably did a lot of things for you now and for the first time your independence. Like all these dynamics are changing. It can be really, really challenging to navigate. And yet you still just want their love and acceptance and respect. And whether you like it or not, if you're like, oh, I'm too cool for like this, it doesn't matter. Internally, it still probably really hurts when they, it doesn't feel like they love you or it doesn't feel like they get you or it doesn't feel like they're there to support you. And so right. <clears throat> having all of that context, there's a lot of different things that both teens and parents can do. And I'll start with the parent side of things because I feel like it's a bit more straightforward. But when I was in residential treatment and my parents would do the parent group. So the teens learn the skills and skills group, and then the parents all do a group together and they learn the same skills. So while the teens are like getting better at regulating their emotions and asking for help, the parents are getting better at responding effectively and setting boundaries that like both sides of the same coin can get better because mental health challenges don't happen in a vacuum and recovery won't either. These different pieces all need to be um, adjusting and improving so that the teen can thrive and recover. And so parents have a role to play too, which can sometimes be hard to accept or something that maybe they don't want to do. But it is, again, if you want recovery, things have to shift, even if it's no one's fault. Like that's another big thing in DBT is we're not blaming. It's not the teen's fault. It's not the parent's fault. But if our goal is recovery, we all have to change something. And so when I was in residential, we did these things called diary cards. And so every single day we would track like, how depressed are you? How anxious are you? What urges are you dealing with? All of the different things that have to do with your mental health. Did you take your meds? Blah, 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 blah. And then the other side of it was what skills do you use? So like a really positive way to track your mental health of like, was I mindful? Did I do deep breathing? Did I set a boundary? Did I ask for help? All of those kinds of things. And so- and and for those who are listening that might not know, that is a very structured DBT skill. Yeah. So the diary card, and I know you'll probably talk a little bit more about DBT because I know you love it, but yeah. um, just to explicitly label that the diary card is, is an important piece um, involved in DBT treatment. Right. Yeah, it's great. And I, I love tracking because if you're not tracking something, you can have awareness. And if you're not aware of a problem, how can you change it? So even if it's like, check boxes for one habit you're trying to shift or a journal where you're paying attention to a couple of things. It's such a powerful tool, even if it's not as structured and crazy with the DBT diary card, because it does track a lot of things. But my dad specifically was someone who didn't necessarily understand my emotional experience. He'd never been depressed before. And he like really couldn't understand that I, especially as a teen, was capable of being so depressed. And so before I went to treatment, I was sleeping on my parents' floor. They didn't trust me to be safe overnight. And so I literally slept on their floor on a blow up mattress for six months. And so every single morning we'd all wake up and they would get ready for work and dropping my siblings off at school. And I would just like lay comatose. I'm like, not today. It's not happening. I'll be here. I'll be sleeping. Today is not, not a good day. And my dad, how he would try to address this is he would play symphony music on volume 10. He'd be like, surely if it's physically uncomfortable enough, she has to get out of bed and go to school. Didn't work. I would still lay there. And then the other thing he would try to do is he'd be like, try and paint a larger picture and be like, Sadie, if you don't get out of bed, you're going to fall behind on your classes, then you're not going to do well on your like tests and exams. And then you're not going to get a good grade. And that's going to impact high school and college. And then you're not going to be able to get a job. And like, this is a really big impact on your larger life, which was really ineffective also. And so the ways that he tried to support and understand and change the behaviors that were causing issues was really ineffective. And there was no validation happening. And so 
once we were doing DBT and I was in residential, the way that we instead connected was that he would look at my diary card because he didn't understand the baseline at which I was functioning. He was like, I know I feel fine and I didn't feel this way as a teen. So I don't really know what's going on with her that's preventing her from getting out of bed every day. And so he would say, okay, what's your baseline like today? What does your diary card say? And I would say, well, you know, I'm like at an eight out of 10 for the most anxious I've ever felt. And I'm at a nine out of 10 for the most depressed I've ever felt. And I'm a nine out of 10 for feeling suicidal. And I have a lot of urges. And for him to understand that without any stressors, we were sitting at a Starbucks and just talking. And that was what my everyday looked like. And that was how much pain I was in really opened his eyes and allowed him to understand what my life looked like. And the other piece of that was that I struggled a lot to be vulnerable with my parents, which I'm sure teens get, like, you don't want to be like, these are my core belief systems. And I feel miserable all the time. And I'm scared of rejection. Like that's really uncomfortable to have that conversation. And so to give numbers to what I was experiencing allowed him to understand and allowed me to be vulnerable in a way that did feel manageable. And so he would hear how I was at and he would say, I have never felt the way you felt before. And obviously I don't understand, but I, I, I see that you're struggling and I see that you're in a lot of pain. And I just want you to know that I get that and I, I'm making space for it. And I just want you to know, I, I see you are in a lot of pain. And if you're not getting out of bed, you must be struggling a lot today. And it must be a really hard thing to navigate if you can't even go to school which I know you used to do. So I just want to say, I see that. And obviously that's not the end goal because me not going to school wasn't going to get me anywhere long-term, but to create space for that emotional experience and um, show that he just had an understanding of that was a game changer for our relationship and had a really positive impact. Well, and I think what you're highlighting is so important and a theme that we've found through our work with youth and even a bit on the show is the piece where sometimes parents don't know what to say or how to respond because it's a different experience than they had. So whether it's because there's more access to technology, whether it's because um, a parent didn't experience mental health, maybe they did and there was a specific therapy that worked really well for them or a specific um, skill that they utilized to work through their mental health journey and they might not understand that that's not the same um, that's going to work for their youth. And so I, I really appreciate kind of you discussing that journey for your dad and your um, dynamic and relationship in, in that he was able to kind of pause and realize that although he didn't understand it or although it was different than his experience, it doesn't mean that he can't still support you and kind of acknowledge that your experience is different. And I think that's really key and important um, because, you know, as times change, right? Like I'm a mom, I have a three and a six-year-old. By the time my kids are adolescents, like me comparing to my adolescence is going to be very different than their experience, right? And we're human, right? There's no judgment there. I think it's natural to say, I've gone through this and this is what I knew at that time. Um, but it, it's that extra step of pausing and recognizing and being vulnerable as a parent that you don't understand something. Um, and so I really appreciate that. And I know you were going to talk next a little bit about kind of the youth to the parent dynamic, but you focused on the parent first, but I really wanted to touch on that because I think it's very important. And a, a lot of our youth at times, I think, shut down when they feel like, well, my parents never going to get it. Or they told me to try going for a walk and I don't want to go for a walk or, you know, your examples, right? Yeah. The big 100%. picture. Yeah. yeah. And so I really appreciate you talking about that. Thank you. Yeah. What, what I'm hearing here, though, before you, you jump into that is 
it really seems like it was an opportunity for you to feel seen, valued, and heard, which is the baseline of what we all want, you know, and, and conversely for your dad to be able to make that connection and acknowledge, I don't understand, but I can see that you're in pain. Like I can imagine that would be a fairly validating experience that would help move things further towards a, a, a an improved goal. Um, I think 100%. that's really powerful in recognizing that. Yeah, a hundred percent. That was all I wanted from my parents was to feel like they, there was a couple of things. And I think like when I was at that point in treatment, I had a belief that they would never love me and, and that I was never deserving of their love and that I would never be good enough for that. Like I didn't inherently think that I was a good enough person to be universally loved and accepted and especially by them. And so I think there was that anxiety and fear about being vulnerable about what I was experiencing because I thought in my mind it made me more unlovable. And that's like what you mentioned, Amy, where like these teens have this anxiety about speaking to their parents about these things. They don't think they'll get it. It'll further ruin the relationship. And I think like you said, Jason, it's really key to have that foundation establishment of both people feeling seen and heard and valued to be able to move forward in any way and have any type right. of relationship. Yeah. And that, that skill of validation was key. And like you guys mentioned, they didn't agree. They didn't condone the behaviors that were happening. They couldn't pull from their own experiences and say, I a hundred percent get what you're navigating, but they were able to create space for it and appreciate what was going on. And that was really all that I like emotionally needed at that point. So it was really, really powerful. Well, it probably um, also helped you to move forward with more expediency of just having that experience of being seen. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And especially because I think so much of mental health challenges and mental illness is your day in and day out struggle is an appreciation, isn't appreciated or seen. It feels like you're fighting this battle every single day and no one gets how hard it is. And no one understands that like you're showing up, but like you barely showed up because you're so overwhelmed and distressed and all of those things. And to, so to have someone say explicitly, I know you're in a lot of pain and I know that just doing the bare minimum is a lot. And I just want to powerful. say that I appreciate that is a game changer. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's powerful. So I know we cut you off there, but you were going to say if a youth is listening and really struggling with how to connect with their parents, you know, I'm, I'm assuming there's some similarities woven through this. What would you say to them if they're listening around? I, I want to connect with my parents, but I don't know how. Yeah. Yeah, I would say family therapy was really, really huge and being able to create a safe space where I could have these conversations and feel okay saying these things. And if you're scared to go to therapy and you're like, I don't want to go to family therapy with my parents, I'm telling you, it is like the best thing you can do because your therapist, especially if you're seeing them for therapy, is going to be on your side. And they're the ones that are going to be like, oh, parents, we don't say that. That's rude please stop talking. Like they're there to help you feel seen and heard and appreciated and safe in what you're saying and make sure it's a positive experience. And so if you can do family therapy, it is a game changer for being able to have those conversations and feel safe because as a teen, there is a power imbalance and you're not equals. And so being able to create that safe space, whether it is setting expectations before a conversation or going to therapy. So I would say like that first and foremost is really, really helpful. And as a teen, I think I didn't want to do family therapy at all, but I think it is a game changer. If you're not feeling heard or seen in your relationships, you don't feel like the way your parents are responding is really effective. Um, having a therapist to moderate that is really helpful, but other things that you can do, I think 
having an understanding of your own belief systems and the way that you're viewing the world and then being able to share that in your relationships is really powerful. So like, for example, my parents had no idea that I didn't feel loved and they had no idea that I thought I wasn't good enough for them. For them, they're like, well, we have loved you universally. It doesn't matter what you do or say or how you feel. We love you and we've loved you for 15 years. And the fact that I didn't feel that way was crazy to them because they're like, we don't understand. Like we would never want you to feel that way or think that we didn't love you no matter what you were going through. And so if you can understand, like I am navigating the world, believing that I'm not good enough for relationships, or I am navigating the world, believing that I am not worthy of love. And then in the relationships that you feel safe and comfortable to be vulnerable and say like, Hey, I I feel like I'm not good enough. Sometimes I just want you to know that like, that is something that's going on in this relationship. They can then have an understanding and appreciation for that and be a little bit more sensitive around that. And so whenever we have hard conversations or whenever um, like an argument is going on, my parents now are really vocal about being like, and yes, this is an uncomfortable conversation, but we love you no matter what. And this doesn't change that. Or we know that you're really struggling and we still love you regardless of how you're feeling and all of that. Well, and again, I love that. But what I'm really hearing out of this conversation, whether you're a youth or a parent or whoever listening, is there is a responsibility for both parties to show up and be vulnerable and be honest yeah. and share what's going on, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's painful. Yeah, 100%. Right? 100%. And like you mentioned, it is painful and uncomfortable. And so I found it really helpful to do a little bit of exposure therapy. And so exposure therapy comes from CBT. And oh my God, I just like accidentally dragged the Zoom into my monitor and it disappeared. <laughs> okay, we're back. Um, But um, exposure therapy comes from CBT and you've probably heard of it for maybe anxiety or maybe for OCD where it's like, if you have a fear of flying first, you would like mentally imagine going through the airport. Maybe you'd watch a vlog of someone going through the airport. Then maybe you drive to the airport and stand outside and pretend like you were going to go in. And then the next day you actually go in and pretend like you were going to get your ticket. And then eventually you get to the point of being on the plane right. and doing your flight. And you're able to overcome that anxiety in a way that's manageable and doable and and you don't just throw yourself into being on the plane, have the craziest panic attack and never fly again. So right. it allows you to overcome those anxieties in a way that's really effective, um, that doesn't cause you to further regress. And so that's exactly what we did with vulnerability, which is that we started by me just saying emotion words. And there was a rule that my parents weren't allowed to ask follow-up questions. So I'd be like anxious. And then we just continue our meal and talk about something completely different. And it gave me the like emotional reassurance. I don't have to explain myself. I don't have to have this deep dive emotional conversation of like, I'm anxious because of X, Y, Z, or I don't have to unpack my feelings or feel judged. Like I just say how I feel. They are there to hear that. And then we move on. And then it was like, then we would start talking about like the diary cards. This is exactly how I'm feeling today. And then just like creating space for that, appreciating that and saying like, I see you, I hear you, I understand you're in pain. And then starting to say like, these are the belief systems I'm having in our relationship and then responding in an effective way. And then eventually getting to a point where like, if I'm feeling stressed or I'm feeling overwhelmed or I need support, being able to go to them and ask for help and saying like, this is where I'm at and trusting that they'll respond in an effective way. Or if they don't respond in an effective way, I have the skills to be able to cope with that. And so treating it as a hierarchy and not being like, Day one, I'm going to go to my parents and say, I'm really depressed. I've been depressed for three years and I'd like to go to therapy and I expect you to do all of this work to change our relationship. 
maybe day one is like, yeah, today was really stressful and overwhelming with finals and blah, blah, blah is happening with my friends. And then day two, it's like, yeah, like I've noticed I've been feeling a little bit lower and maybe I'm struggling with my self-esteem. So like you build up that hierarchy, both for your benefit and your parents as well. well. And I love the incremental approach to doing that and recognizing that in our humanness, day one, nobody's going to show up perfectly, you know, like, and really being able to validate for people listening, like this is a process that built over some time that, that strengthened those tools in your toolbox. So people had more experience using them when it came time to have these more uh, technical conversations, let's say. So I, I host a radio show called Get Unstuck, Move Forward With Your Life. And the foundation of that radio show was always Um, I meet really cool, interesting people along the way, and I never had a business case on why to connect them to somebody else. So I would host these conversations with them because I just think they're interesting people. I've noticed in what you've done on She Persisted is you've also brought people that are close or part of your journey into the conversation and had those with you. Help us understand, like, what was the intentionality behind that other than it's often easier to get people we know to talk on our show. But like, I, I feel like there was probably some more intentionality behind that that really has set the foundation for you doing this incredible work that you've done and sharing your story in terms of then going on to help other people. Yeah. I think just like not enough teens are talking about their mental health experiences and especially recovery. I think that was something I noticed when I went through treatment was like, you're in a vacuum of teens that are also struggling. And if you're not struggling, you're probably not talking about it. There's not a lot of inspiring case studies of like, this teen is doing great with their mental health. And that's where I want to be also like, there aren't those people out there that are sharing those stories. And so I wanted to, to do that. And I think, um, the same thing is true with regards to speaking to your experience, whether it's parents of teens that have struggled, maybe it's siblings of teens, maybe it is a therapist that's worked with a teen. Obviously, you can seek out maybe an interview here or there, but I think that there was a lot of these experiences that were really universal. Like for my siblings, it was really challenging for me to go away for a year and a half and for me to emotionally be struggling for a really long time and be in that like identified patient role where I was getting a lot of attention and support because I needed it at that point. And then I was mentally in a completely different spot and came home and dynamics changed. Like that was a really challenging thing to go through um, as a younger sibling. And then for my parents, like they made the choice to send me to treatment. Not a lot of parents are talking about that decision being made and when they knew it was the right time to make that decision and how they found the right program. Um, Same thing with like what worked and what we wish we would have done differently, how we built that vulnerability in our relationship. I think I can only speak to so much of that experience and there's so much value from these other perspectives. Again, mental health challenges don't happen in a vacuum. Recovery doesn't either. And I can only share so much of my own experience um, and what really allowed me to recover and maintain that recovery was all these other individuals also doing their part um, and and wanting something better for me. And so um, anytime they're willing to speak to that, I'm like, please come on the podcast. (laughs) And it's so beautiful because it's just real. I mean, it's, it's getting Mm -hmm. to the root of what's real and, and what really resonates with me about us doing this show and you doing your show and the, the blending of all of that is just, really the awareness of we're not talking about this enough, regardless of how big either of our platforms become doing this work, it's still not enough. So being that you've, you know, had over 200,000 downloads for She Persisted at this point, what do you think we need to be doing systemically to really continue to spark and inspire these conversations aside from what we're already doing? 
And there's so many things. I think there's little things that we can individually do to check stigma and try and um, approach this conversation more effectively. Like anytime we have a thought about mental health, comparing it with physical health is super effective. Like if you're like, should I go to a therapist? Should I go to a psychiatrist? Think about it from a physical health perspective. If you're struggling with something for six months and you hadn't gone to a doctor, you'd be like, that's really irresponsible of me. I might have a disease that's killing me. Like this is really concerning. But with mental health, we're like, oh, it's fine. Same thing with like um, how we tell ourselves, oh, it's not bad enough. Like other people have it worse. If you had a cough, but you weren't like, this is not a great picture, like coughing up blood, you wouldn't be like, well, again, it's fine. Other people are coughing up blood. So I don't need to go see a doctor. You'd be like, I also am sick. And yes, maybe I need to see a different doctor than that other person, but I do need medical care. And so there's little things like that that we can do to check the way that we're showing up in this conversation and um, sharing our own experiences and and the way that we are willing to accept help and, and all those kinds of things. And then I think as a society, there's so much work that needs to be done. I think there's still a really slow matriculation of like research and mental health advances and then making those accessible to the general population finding a DBT therapist is really hard to do. Finding a therapist period is really hard to do. There's really long wait lists. A lot of these programs, um, you're waiting for a bed to open up or you can't get out of the emergency room to get to an inpatient program because again, a bed hasn't opened up. And so these resources um, and accessibility really needs to be improved. Um, And whether that is on things with regard to things like insurance or the number of providers that are available um, or how we're communicating these advances in the mental health field, that's really important. We need a lot more um, uh, legislative oversight for teen mental health care. It's really um, an area that teens really, unfortunately, um, experience really negative things when they go to the wrong programs and are put in the hands of the wrong people. And so we need a lot of... um, shifts to be had there. And then the one of the biggest things that I think we're starting to do, but there's still room for improvement, um, is education in schools. We're starting to have like social emotional learning programs. We're starting to implement things like growth mindset and positive psychology techniques. But I don't think there's enough um, educational systems that address things like what different emotions do we experience? What right. purposes do those serve? How do we have healthy relationships? Like, how do we set boundaries? How do we ask for something in an effective way? How do we regulate those emotions once we've identified what they are? And then what do we look for when um, we're struggling with our mental health? What are signs of depression and anxiety? And how do you counteract those? What resources do you go look for? And so I think um, from a systemic level, that's really important as well. Yeah, well, and I think you're sure. speaking to our language. I mean, we are so passionate about the amount of people that are feeling those barriers and that's a reality, right? There's not enough providers for the need right now. Um, There are wait lists. There are people who are trying to access that care. And, you know, as a LCSW, I do know that all of the providers don't love that that's a problem either. Everyone has a passion for what can we do to get more access to care? What, how can we get people support and, and ways to access support 
um, while they are waiting. And that's why I think, you know, things like your podcast are amazing because it's really practical advice. You talk a lot about DBT skills that people can practice on their own. Um, again, I know you always say I'm not a therapist, but <laughs> I, I think that, you know, giving those real life examples and even today sharing your experiences um, is so impactful because when people feel isolated or feel alone or like nobody understands or nobody cares or um, those are the those are the times and those are the people that we want to um, reach and I, I think that your podcast does a beautiful job of that and and your um, story here today so I really appreciate Thank that. You. Um, I know we're I, I, I want to mirror one thing on that I know we're right at time here but okay. The, the thing that I want to say that I took away from what you just shared with us so beautifully is it's high time that we normalize these conversations. And I go back to the words that I've used a long time. Everyone struggles. And, and the, the, the sooner that we can start having these conversations openly and honestly, you know, collectively, I think we will make some progress that leads to the other things. But you know, unfortunately, we're still a long way from that. But I mean, it starts with a spark of inspiration from people who have the courage to show up and share your, th their stories like you have. So thank you, thank you, thank you for the work that you're doing. It is so necessary and it is so important. Yeah, thank you. And we we truly appreciate you being on. Um, we're honored that you were willing to be this vulnerable. I feel like we could probably talk for a whole nother hour. Um, <laughs> and for those of you who haven't listened, I do encourage you to listen to Sadie's podcast. Um, we always wrap up with one question on our podcast. So Sadie, can you share with us what nobody's perfect means to you? Yeah, I think, um, oh, I have to think on this one for a minute. So I have a good answer. <laughs> Let's see. You're just fine. Take your time. Um, okay. I'm going to do an, a hot take. This is what this will be. Do it. Let's go. Um, I love the idea that nobody's perfect. I think especially as it connects to self-esteem, I think you are completely worthy and perfect and lovable exactly how you are. I think that your version of perfect and your version of worthy and your version of lovable is going to be completely different from someone else. And I think that we also can remember that stuck and your current mental health space is just a starting place. You're, this is not what the rest of your life is going to look like. And so if your current perspective or where you currently are at mentally, you're like, this is not perfect. This is horrible. This is awful. I wish I felt completely differently. I think as humans, we are incredibly malleable. The only constant that we experience is change. And so you have so much potential to turn your life around and turn your mental health around um, and make changes that will have a really positive impact on your mood and your life in general. That's beautiful. Thank you for being a part of Nobody's Perfect, a community dedicated to supporting, inspiring, and empowering youth and families. We hope you've enjoyed this transformative conversation today. Together, we're dismantling stigma and providing solutions for the mental health and well-being challenges we all encounter. Be sure to join us every other week on Cozy101.com imperfect or on your favorite streaming platform to continue embracing our shared human experience. If you haven't already done so, please follow us at Nobody's Perfect Community on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. I'm your host, Jason Hopkins, joined by my co-host, Amy Staley, and it's been a pleasure having you here. Stay connected, stay inspired, and remember, nobody's perfect because perfection isn't real. Your story is. Until next time.